Father, we humbly seek your forgiveness. Thank you for your promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just. You will forgive us our sins. Father, we thank you for our church, for the labor of love of our pastors and elders, and for their family's support. We thank you for our connection groups and the different ways to serve. We especially thank you for the leaders because of their hard work. We connect and serve together and learn to live the Jesus way together. Help our leaders, pastors, elders to genuinely love one another despite of different opinions we may have so that we can follow your commandment to be united together and also help us to become a church of prayer. Father, every week with the Sunday morning prayer team, we are learning to pray for one missionary. Today here, we remember and pray for all of our missionaries. We thank you for the great example of living the Jesus way in their mission fields. We especially remember the four missionaries who have left us during the last few months, either retired or moved to the next stage of life. We thank you for their many years of serving people sacrificially and for the privilege that we can pray and support them in very small ways. We also pray that you raise new missionaries among us to serve you in this very special way. Father, every week with the Sunday morning prayer team, we also learn to pray for the persecuted church. Today we pray for Indonesia. We know that Indonesia is the country with the world's largest Muslim population. It is also a country close to our hearts here at PBCC because we have our dear sister Miao served with Wycliffe for several years in Indonesia. And because of that experience, today she is part of the Crescent Project to bring gospel to the Muslims and to show the love of Jesus to our Muslim neighbors. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Indonesia. Many of them are persecuted because of their faith. I'm sure the suffering they have to endure is harder than the very hard weather we had to endure last week. We pray that you give them wisdom and boldness as they lift the Jesus way in that increasingly hardline Islamic society. Father, this week, England and a big part of the world mourn for the passing away of Queen Elizabeth II. May we learn her example of faithful commitment to duty. And may we weep with those who weep. We also pray for our loved ones, those in our body, and maybe ourselves, who suffer from illness, depression, anxiety, job loss, and other losses. We also remember those who are suffering because of different reasons, because of the extreme weather, wild f 
fire, storms, flooding, and the families of the four victims killed in Memphis shootings earlier this week. Father, may your grace, peace, and healing power be with us and with them. Continue to show us your way. Father, we give you thanks for the amazing, amazing Sunday school teachers and pastors of our children and youth. They have been doing a marvelous job teaching the next generation and demonstrating the Jesus way. We also want to give you thanks to the tech crew, the live stream team, and those who serve in community hours with their help with their service, we can comfortably sitting here and learning your way. Finally, Father, I thank you for your grace that you say if we confess our sins, you will forgive us. Father, I confess my wrongdoing, especially for this overly long prayer and too many words I have said that made this worship service too long. May you grant me peace from everyone especially our wonderful youth and children, and you will forgive me. Thank you for the grace I received from the first service. Thank you, Father. In your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. In our scripture reading from John 14, 1 to 6, I'll read each verse in English, and Esther will read in, in Greek. Let not your hearts be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. Me tarasesto humon he cardia, pistuete eiston theon, kai eisme pistuete. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Ente orkia tu patros mu. Monai palai eisen, eide me, epon anhumin hati peruomai hetoimasai tapanhumin. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Kai eon porutho kai hetoimaso tapanhumin. Palin erkomai kai paralemsomai humas pros emalton, hina hapu emi ego kai humes ete. And you know the way to where I am going. Kai hapu ego hupago, oidate ten hodon. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Lege auto Thomas, curie, uk oidamen pu hupages, pos dunametha ten hodon edenai? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Lege auto ha Jesus, ego emi he hodos, kai he aletheia, Kai he zoe, udes erkatai proston patera, eme di emu. All right. Thank you, Paskies. 
Thank you, Melody. You most certainly have a new job. So, and good morning. It's good to be back, and uh, good to be back in the Gospel of John. For this fall, we will be walking through John, and we'll be looking at what the way of Jesus looks like. Over the summers, uh, our youth take a trip called River Camp. You may remember the video that Becca showed, I don't know, six or seven weeks ago of this year's trip. It's a great trip, phenomenal trip, because it is a great adventure. And one of the great adventures on the trip is a hike to Yukonom Falls. Yukonom Falls, there it is on the right there. Uh, when I first started as a youth pastor, this, this hike was described to me as a hike to the Garden of Eden. And I agree. After I did it, I was like, wow, this is a little bit like what I would imagine the Garden of Eden being light, like, although the water is really cold. Um, but here's the thing. There's only one way to get, get to this Yukonom Falls. You have to enter the hike from the river. So you have to, you have to raft down the river, um, dock your rafts, and then start hiking through this narrow canyon. You can see the canyon on the left there. And sometimes, it's about a mile long, sometimes you're, 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 you're hiking upstream through the cold water. Sometimes you're hiking along the cliffs. It's a difficult and dangerous hike. Totally safe, parents, though. So totally safe. <laughs> so why do we go on this difficult and dangerous hike? Because it's the only way to get to the destination. There's no other way in. You may prefer to go a different way, but you can't. There's no other option to get to this Garden of Eden place. Sometimes when I go on this hike, I get about halfway there and I'm tired and I'm cranky and I sit down and I throw a fit. And I complain about how difficult it is. But there's no point in complaining. It's the only way. Other times, I'm on the hike and my gut tells me this can't be the way. There's got to be multiple ways, easier ways, into this Garden of Eden place. But I pull out my map and I confirm, no, this is most certainly the only way to Yukonom. If I choose to go a different way, I'll never make it to the destination. Whether I like it or not makes no difference. The truth is the truth. That's just the way things are. There's only one way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to the Father. It certainly is an audacious word. But it's not an arrogant word. It's not a triumphalistic word. It's not an oppressive word because it's spoken by Jesus, the humble and gentle lover of our souls 
This is the man who washes the disciples' feet. This is the man who lays down his life on the cross as the good shepherd. And here, he is humbly and gently telling us the way things are. Like the hike to Yukonam, it's simply the reality of the situation. There's no use complaining about it, no use complaining about the difficulty or danger of it. There's only one way to the destination, and it's through him. This is the truth. It's a non-negotiable truth, and it's the only truth that will save us. This is simply the way things are. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son who is the way, the truth, and the life. And now we pray that you would open our hearts through your Spirit this morning to this truth in new ways. In Jesus' name, amen. So where are we in the book of John? Well, we're walking through what has traditionally been called the upper room discourse. Jesus has gathered his disciples in a room somewhere in downtown Jerusalem the night before he goes to the cross. So this would be Thursday night of Holy Week. He wants to share with them the most important points of following him. So he has a meal with his friends. It's his last supper. And he, here at this last supper, he'll wash his disciples' feet. And after that, he begins to teach them. And that's when he makes this audacious claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. And he takes the rest of the discourse to describe what following his way entails. What will we find along his way. Well, today, we hear a wonderful truth and several extraordinary promises. And at the end of my sermon, we'll have time for a testimony. So I invite you into our text today. We'll begin reading with that famous verse, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, that would be Thomas, but really all the disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. That's the word of the Lord. Well, we see here that Philip is confused. This is normal for the disciples, especially in the upper room. The disciples reveal over and over again that they are without understanding. So Jesus, or Philip asked Jesus to show him the Father. And here is a text for all of you teachers. 
Jesus responds, Philip, I've been with you for so long and you still don't understand. In other words, Philip, where have you been for three years? I can imagine you teachers at the end of the year saying, where have you been for this year? And indeed, where has Philip been for three years? In the prologue, John had told us that Jesus makes the living God known. But even throughout the gospel, Jesus has made this point clear. In chapter 5, Jesus said, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. In chapter 8, Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. In chapter 10, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Philip, where have you been? Now, throughout this Upper Room Discourse, we'll find references to the triune God over and over again. In fact, it was this discourse which led the early church fathers to solidify the doctrine of the Trinity from which the creeds are formed. At the center of the universe is an intimate relationship between three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Trinity. Jesus will get to the Spirit in the next text. The point is that the living God is personal. That's the point. God lives in a personal relationship and therefore can be known, can only be known in a personal relationship. The center of reality is this intimate relationship between Father Son and Spirit. You can't talk about Jesus without talking about the Trinity. And yes, it's a difficult concept, but there's no point in complaining. It's simply the way things are. The truth is the truth. As C.S. Lewis has said, if Christianity was something we were making up, of course we could make it easier, but it's not. We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. How could we? <laughs> We're dealing with fact. Of course, anyone can be simple if they don't have any facts to bother about. Jesus says, trust me, Philip. To have seen me is to have seen the Father. In other words, Jesus is saying the Father is just as good as he is. Now, I know that some of us have pain surrounding father language, but I think Jesus wants to heal us of that pain. And he wants to heal us by teaching us about the, his good father. It's like he's saying, I know a different father than any of you know. It's my father. And he's just like me. If you like me, you're going to like my father. You like my gentleness, it's the gentleness of the Father. You like my availability, it's the availability of the Father. You like my acceptance, it's the acceptance of the Father. You like my compassion, it's the compassion of the Father. You like my open arms, they're the open arms of the Father. Philip, to see me is to see the Father. So life along the Jesus way is filled with relationships and it begins with our relational God. Now after this wonderful truth claim, Jesus moves on to some extraordinary promises. 
And these extraordinary promises can be summarized in remarkable works and realized prayer. So we begin with remarkable works, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So Jesus begins here with truly, truly. He does that a lot in the Gospel of John. In Greek, it's literally amen, amen. And when he says this, we should sit up and take notice. Because what follows um, those words is something we can trust. It's something we can build our lives on. We can count on these words. And what follows these words here are that Jesus says that those who trust in him will do greater works than him. Whoa. In the Gospel of John, Jesus has done many astounding works turning water into wine, healing several people, multiplying fish and loaves, walking on the water, and bringing Lazarus back from the dead. And now Jesus says, if you trust in him, you'll do greater works than those. Really? Jesus? Does that mean that we're going to raise multiple Lazari? (laughs) Or maybe if we raise them, they'll do backflips when they come out of the grave. How do we make sense of this extraordinary promise? Well, to begin with, we have to notice that this promise is grounded in a because clause. Those who believe in Jesus will do greater works because he is going back to the Father. So what does this because clause mean? Well, it means this. Jesus is going back to the Father, and that will result in a new reality and a new resource. A new reality and a new resource. Jesus is going back to the Father. This refers to his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. And that sequence of events will change the world. They'll change the world. That sequence of events will bring in a new reality. How? Because in that sequence of events, a new reality emerges through what happens to sin, evil, and death. At the cross, the stronghold of sin is broken. The authority of evil is broken, and the grip of death is broken. At the cross, sin, evil, and death are defeated. They're not abolished yet, but they're defeated. Jesus wins the victory at the cross. And then on Easter morning, a whole new creation comes into being. Reality is restructured when Jesus rises from the grave. The enemies of life no longer hold hold power over those along the Jesus way. And then at the ascension, reality is restructured even more. All the powers that seek to destroy us are placed under Jesus' feet. 
That's what Paul says in Ephesians when he says that Jesus has been raised from the dead, seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet. All authority has been given to Jesus. And he's on the throne, reigning from on high over this new reality. So what does this have to do with greater works? Well, Jesus does his work before the battle. We participate in his work after the battle. In our reality, all the foes, all of our foes are defeated. They're all defeated foes. They no longer have the last word on anything. They only have the second to last word. Jesus has the last word on everything. And we see this at every funeral, don't we? We look straight at death and we see that it has done all that it can do. It can do no more. Jesus will have the last word. That'd be a good time to say amen. <laughs> but Jesus going to the Father doesn't only bring in a new reality, it also brings in a new resource. From his throne, Jesus pours out the Spirit on all flesh. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is poured out at Pentecost to enable greater work. So what is the greater work? Well, it's this. It's announcing and living the good news of Jesus' greatest work, namely his victory over sin, evil, and death. George Beasley Murray says it best. He says, the greater works are the actualization of the realities to which the work of Jesus point, namely the bestowal of the blessings and power of the kingdom of God among men and women which the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus let loose in the world. The greater work is announcing and living the blessings and power of the kingdom of God, which Jesus' victory over sin, evil, and death let loose in the world. And this isn't just miracles. We tend to think it's only miracles. It can be, as Bernard shared with us last week from Hebrews, it could be raising multiple Lazari, but it also points to acts of humility, deeds of service, small acts of love. It points to deeds of restoration and forgiveness and reconciliation. It points to being people of the Tao, living the Jesus way in everyday life, ordinary people empowered by the Spirit, loving just as he loved us. That's the greater work because Jesus goes to the Father. In 2006, there was a school shooting at an Amish school in Pennsylvania. I grew up in Amish country in Pennsylvania, so this um, has stuck with me. It was a horrible day. 
as those days continue to be. A man walked into an Amish schoolhouse and killed five children. And how did the Amish community respond? In a radically remarkable way. They forgave the shooter. And why? Because, in their words, they knew their children were going to heaven and they knew they would join them there someday because of Jesus' victory over death. They were living the power of the kingdom of God which Jesus' victory over sin, evil, and death let loose in the world. They were embracing the new reality. Death doesn't have the final word. Jesus does. That's the kind of remarkable works the Holy Spirit does inside of us along the Jesus way. But there's more. Verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus not only promises remarkable works, he also promises realized prayer along his way. So what is Jesus really promising here? I've had this, as a pastor, I've had this asked to me many times. Well, two things right off the top that we typically miss. First of all, Jesus is promising to hear our prayers. We don't see that in these verses, but he's promising to hear our prayers. And secondly, he's promising to mediate our prayers. Hebrews tells us that Jesus stands as our mediator and that we can boldly approach God's throne and cry out for our needs to be met. So Jesus hears and mediates our prayers. Okay, that's the easy part. <laughs> now the hard part. What about his promise, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Does he really mean whatever? Is he really promising that I only need to say in Jesus' name at the end of my prayers and I'll get whatever I ask for? James Taylor sang a song like that. Just call out my name. And you know, wherever I am, I'll come running. You know that song, right? Okay, good, good. I didn't get any response there. If we simply call out Jesus' name, he'll come running? Well, if that's the case, I'll take five Teslas, a house in Hawaii, and Warriors tickets for the season. In Jesus' name. <laughs> well, no. That would be to treat prayer as some magical incantation. So what does Jesus mean here? Well, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, if this passage contains a truth, it's a truth for advanced pupils only. <laughs> he struggled with this text when his wife was dying of cancer. Well, one thing I think is helpful to understand is what name refers to in Scripture. Name in Scripture is never merely a label. It's a revelation of character. 
A name in scripture carries with it the character and reputation of that person. So to pray in Jesus' name is to pray according to his character and his reputation. This is what glorifies the Father. It's not much different from what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Right? There we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're praying that the Father would reveal his character, his reputation, that his name would be glorified and valued. And here we pray according to Jesus' character, his reputation, his values, which, as we just learned, is the same as the Father's. I think what is also helpful is to hear what John writes in one of his letters. This is 1 John 5. He says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. So we pray according to his character and according to his will. In Lewis's exposition on this passage, he repeatedly returns to the prayer that Jesus will pray in only a few hours from now. The one in the garden. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As we know, the cup was not removed from him. As Jesus was constrained by his Father's will, so are we. Now what is interesting is that in the upper room discourse alone, there are six references to realized prayer. Six. And then in chapter 17, we get the longest recorded prayer in the New Testament. The uh, high priestly prayer by Jesus. Do you think he wants us to pray? I think so. God is a God of relationship, and prayer is always an expression of our trusting relationship with him. So we share with Jesus everything on our heart, and we trust him to answer according to his will. We pray unceasingly, boldly, and expectantly. We pray with abandonment. That's what we do along the Jesus way. We pray. Now, I'm not a great prayer myself. So there's a small group of us that pray on Wednesday mornings. And I mostly just do it to hear everyone else pray because they're amazing. But you're all invited. So if you want to pray on Wednesday mornings, join us. Melody has a prayer group uh, on Sunday mornings. There's others throughout the week. I just want to encourage all of us to pray because this, this is our language along the Jesus way. Well, I need to close so we can hear our testimony, but as we follow Jesus along his way, we recognize he is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. And along this way, we remember and embrace four things. We trust Jesus, and we trust his promises. We embrace the new reality. Sin, evil, and death are defeated foes. They don't have the last word on anything. We receive the new resource. Something we'll talk about more next week. The Spirit 
is God's great gift to us along the Jesus way. And we pray. He hears our prayers, he mediates our prayers, and he answers our prayers according to his will. So we pray with abandonment to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. This is what we can expect along the Jesus way. So now we have time to hear a testimony. I'm going to invite Eva to come up here. And uh, I heard Eva's story when she shared for her baptism last fall. We have another baptism in October if anybody wants to get baptized. Um, But I knew when I heard her story that it would be perfect for Jesus as the only way. So please share with us, Eva. Good morning, everyone. My name is Eva Chen. Um, I was born in Asia into a family that believes in Buddhism. My education there made me an atheist. I had no opportunity to become a Christian. In fact, I first know about God through music. When I was in middle school, I joined a choir. My choir teacher was a Christian. She led us to practice some hymns. I still remember vividly that we got together in our church and sang the Hallelujah by Handel. I was deeply touched. And, uh, and, and, and I was deeply touched. The sacred feeling of praising aloud to God was completely different from the patriotic songs we usually sung. Things then, I have believed that there must be something holy beyond the visible world we lived in. Then I went to college. My major was philosophy, and it really opened my mind. I was fascinated with several Western philosophers, such as Immanuel Kant and Friedrich Nietzsche. I soon became an idealist until I came across a documentary It was about some college students' protest that happened a couple of decades ago, and the government's crackdown. I was shocked. It was a major event in modern history, yet I have never heard anything about it. Those people who were killed in the event were about my age then, and they believed it was their duty to protest. That became a turning point in my life. It completely destroyed my old beliefs. After college, I gradually became disappointed with myself, my cowardness, my cynicism, and incapability. Even even at this point now, I have to self-scrutiny my words in this public speech. My mom solemnly warned me, don't say anything bad about your country. The fear that is deeply imprinted in their generation has been clearly passed on to me. Later, amid the grave disappointment and the fear, I met my wonderful husband, and soon we had a lovely song. I was so grateful to have such a beautiful family. Yet when my son studied in elementary school, I also began feeling increasingly anxious. Deep down, I didn't believe the streamlined educational method 
that ignore children's welfare. To me, it made our children into learning machines. It only praised instructional rationality, but obscured value rationality. Like the German philosopher Immanuel Kant said, human beings should be treated as an end in themselves rather than as a mean to something else. Yet when I fall into the hole of moral nihilism, how can I support my son to figure out the right way to fulfill himself? At that desperate moment, I remember Frederick Nietzsche in Twilight of the Idol, he wrote, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. By breaking the main concept out of it, the faith in God, one breaks the whole. Clearly, he saw the danger in a world without God. But no one, not even one of the philosophies that I had pursued could offer me a way. In my utter distress, I cried out to the God I sung about in hundreds, hallelujah, many years ago. God, please save me from the abyss. Please let me know you and rely on you. I studied my faith in God with the acknowledgement of my weakness. In this restless, competitive world, you either have to be strong or pretend to be strong. Yet human beings are prone to err, as we have always heard about this old saying, to err is human, to forgive divine. Thankfully, our God is inclusive and redemptive. So I set out to seek God and hope to see himself, to see myself in him and learn the way to live in this world with confidence. I started to look for church in my hometown, but I could not get any connections there. Then my husband had an opportunity to transfer his job to, to the US and we decided to move to America. We settled in an apartment on Blenny Ave in this unknown city called Cupertino. One day, I went outside and walked around, and I saw that right next to our apartment, there was a church called PBCC, with a cross standing tall on the top of its roof. I was surprised in awe. I truly felt it was a miracle. I believe I have received a clear response from God, whom I was seeking. I was very reluctant to work into the church. I know no one here, and my English was not good. My wonderful husband encouraged me, and he searched the PBCC website and found that there was a choir. He sent an email to David, the choir director, and David Welcomely, warmly welcomed me to join the choir. Soon I was introduced to a small Bible study group where I started to learn about the words of God and the love God has already prepared for me. I used to be a spiritual orphan on the faith journey, but then I found God. He is the way, the truth, the life which is so different and unique from the philosophies of men. And I, f I felt grateful to find my heavenly father. 
Finally, I found my faith journey was just proved in Romans 12:12, "Be patient in affliction." So let's always keep our hope in God, because Jesus Himself, the true way, He also promised us in Matthew 7:7, "Ask and it will be given to you; seek and you will find; knock and the door will be opened to you." For everyone who asks receives; the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Thank you. Great job. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray for you, Eva. I'm gonna invite the band up as I pray. So let's just pray. Father, we uh, we thank you that you draw us to yourself. We thank you for drawing Eva. Thank you for uh, the Hallelujah chorus and uh, how you shared your truth through that with her. Thank you for this journey you have her on. Thank you for the courage that you gave her to share this morning. And uh, we just are excited for what you would do in her and through her moving forward. So thank you in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now receive this benediction. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life for all creation. As we move out into our weeks, grant us the grace to walk in your way, to rejoice in your truth, and to share your risen life, the new reality with the new resource. Grant us the strength to follow you well along your way. Amen. Have a great week.